CJSW 90.9 FM and CMRU Radio in Calgary. Uki, Danse, Hello, my name is Grace Heavy Runner, Buxiganaki from indigenization across the nation. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, Kainai, Siksika, and Begani First Nations, the Sutina Nation, and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Today, I have a very special guest, Ian Hannington. He is a senior writer and editor at David Suzuki Foundation. And today, we discuss a very important topic, climate change. share with me your earliest memories of writing my earliest memories of writing yes um well i think i've been writing for a long time i think one of the uh, one of my earliest memories was writing a short story when i was in elementary school a sort of a science fiction story and getting really good feedback on it from the teachers and i think that was one of the things that made me think oh maybe i'm good at this oh nice <laughs> And, you know, I always worked on student newspapers and stuff throughout school. So, mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, when did you decide that you wanted to become a reporter? Um, it's, it was sort of a long, a long decision in a way in that um, uh, I left home. I, I grew up in Calgary, and I left home at, at quite an early age, as soon as I finished high school. And I had thought about going into writing or journalism or, or some some sort of career in writing back then, but I still wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do, so I ended up taking a detour and working for CP Rail for quite some time. And after a while, I, I, while I was working for them, I started going to school part-time, and uh, I ended up enrolling in the creative writing program in Nelson at what was then David Thompson University. And I was really inspired by that program. There were a lot of really good instructors, and um, it was just such an inspiring time for me. It was it was uh, a lot of fun, especially after having worked for the railway in small towns for so many years, to be around writers and artists and musicians and stuff like that. And But the uh, government of the time, the provincial government, shut the university down halfway through my degree. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, of course, a lot of the people who were studying there left, and I was back working night shift on the railway, and it just didn't seem like very much fun. So I quit and moved to Vancouver and finished my degree, although didn't finish a creative writing degree. I ended up with a sociology degree and then went traveling and then um, ran out of money, came back to Vancouver and uh, worked for the summer again for the railway and went to journalism school. And that sort of 
how how the that career started anyway. Mm-hmm. What interested you on the environment? Well, I think I've I've always been interested in the environment, and mm-hmm. and I think it, it sort of coincides with my interest in journalism. I grew up, um, at a, you know, I grew up sort of during the Vietnam War, and uh, you know, I remember books like Silent Spring and Operate Buckminster Fuller's Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth and the Environmental Handbook. So back then, the environment was quite a big issue, but uh, you know, also being the Vietnam War, my parents were quite active. Um, in um, protests against the war, and we used to put up draft dodgers and draft deserters at our house in Calgary. And so uh, I, I started to realize the power that good information through journalism had in mobilizing protest and people and how that could actually bring about change, which I think you know happened in the Vietnam War because there was some really good journalism that uncovered stuff that just made you know, appalled people. And so that turned out, you know, made a lot more people join the the protests and the the movement against the war, which I think ultimately, to some extent, brought about the end of the war. And so I think when I uh, when I went into journalism, I always wanted to do it with, you know, I didn't want it just as a job. I wanted to do, you know, to put my my skills to some good use. And the environment was, you know, environment and politics were always sort of big issues for me. And I think one of the the first job I had in journalism, other than student newspapers, was at uh, a newspaper in Grand Forks, B.C. And because Grand Forks is a forestry and mining community, or was back then, but mostly forestry now, there were a lot of environmental issues and there were a lot of very knowledgeable people. So I, I focused a lot on them. You know, I had to cover city council and all the other issues that come with being a reporter at a community paper, but uh, but the environment was always a big one, and there were so many interesting issues around there that, uh, you know, I, I ended up covering a lot of that, and then later on moved to Kamloops, where, which was a bigger community, but still with a lot of environmental issues, and so it was something that I always had an interest in. Um, and then eventually in Vancouver, I ended up working at the Georgia Strait, which is the alternative news weekly here. And we did a lot of environmental and political coverage. So it was, um, yeah, it was always kind of a, um, always on my radar, I think. Thank you, Ian. What was your first big publication on climate? Um, I'm trying to think. You know, I know I assigned some stories at the Georgia Strait on climate-related issues, but, you know, it wasn't as as big on my radar back then. So it was probably working for the David Suzuki Foundation. Um, When I first started working at the foundation, I was working in the marine and, and freshwater protection program that they had here, so I wasn't really doing that much on climate. But eventually, uh, David Suzuki had a weekly column that goes out to the media throughout Canada and a few outlets in the States and Australia and New Zealand as well. And the people who were helping him write it ended up leaving the foundation, and there was some talk about what to do with it. So I volunteered to to help with the column. And so I would imagine the first um, sort of major writing I did on climate was with that column. I mean, I had to, I eventually, after the Marine program, worked for our climate program here at the foundation. So I had to write a lot of news releases and backgrounders and stuff. But I think the, the first sort of journalism or opinion writing that I did was with the column. Okay. I think, yeah, I wanted to ask you when you became senior editor for David Suzuki Foundation, what challenges did you encounter? 
Is there any? Um, well, I think there have been a lot of challenges. I think there's, you know, partly because there's been a lot of changes in this organization and a lot of changes in the political sphere and, you know, a lot of changes in terms of what's going on with the climate. So um, I, the biggest challenge I had is, is I was originally hired here on a one-year temporary contract, and I saw that there was really no oversight over a lot of the, the publications that went out of here. They were publishing a lot of scientific reports and and a lot of other materials. And so I made a proposal to be the sort of the publications and editorial specialist. And they accepted my proposal and kept me on, but then they never actually gave me the job for a few years. So I ended up, um, you know, doing other stuff, but then still working on, you know, doing a lot of the editing and writing. So I think part of the challenge was just, you know, eventually, you know, it took some time to actually get into the role where I was focusing almost entirely on editing and writing. And, um, you know, I still do some media relations and strategy and stuff like that. But um, I think, yeah, that was that was one of the things. Um, you know, also just sort of bringing some standards of consistency to the organization, those kinds of things. Um, I suppose, you know, and then, you know, I've also written a couple of books or co-written a couple of books while I've been here, which is a big challenge when you're working a full-time job trying to write a book at the same time. is It's a lot of work. <laughs> when did you make the decision to become fully involved with climate change? Um I don't know whether it was it was really a concrete decision. It was just, you know, working here and reading about it and researching about it and talking to scientists about it and realizing what a big problem it was and that, you know, we need to do everything we can to resolve it. And, you know, as with, with a journalism background and being just a naturally sort of curious person, I wanted to find out as much as as much as I could about it. I think one of the things that really hit home for me is uh, it was probably my first week of working here, my first couple of weeks. Um, I went to a, um, a, a conference we had or a retreat we had, and there was a climate scientist there. And even though I wasn't working on climate issues at the time, I got to talking to him. And I asked him, and this was back in uh, 2007, so it was a little while ago, and I asked him, I said, so what is the deal with climate change? How bad is it? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, scientists tend to be very conservative and they don't want to be alarmist and they tend to talk in, uh, in you know, scientific academic terms. He said, but I can tell you it's far worse than most people realize. And that kind of, it shocked me. It kind of scared me a little bit. So I started looking into it a lot myself and, and trying to find out as much as I could about it. Aquititi kitab 
kan kızardami udana kıksa Who are the scientific researchers you gather your information from? Uh, geez, there's such a huge range of them. Um, you know, I go to a lot of different, uh, you know, I look at a lot of different um, um, scientific reports that come out. So, of course, all the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, I look at all of those. I look at magazines like Nature, Climate Change, and, you know, some of those. And then the people I work with are always sending me stuff as well. So, um, you know, there are quite a few different people. You know, I've I've corresponded with and talked to people from Peter Kalmus to Andrew Weaver before he got into politics to Michael Mann. Um, so, yeah, a lot of different, you know, in terms of the science of it, a lot of them. But, you know, there's also the, the sort of the activist end. And, you know, we do a lot of work with uh, Indigenous peoples here at the Foundation. So I've learned a lot, um, you know, about about just the traditional knowledge and what people have actually seen happening with their own eyes. So I think it's it's a real combination. But I, I read a lot of different publications as well. I think there's some in Canada that do fairly good climate coverage, like the... Uh, National Observer and the Tai and uh, the Narwhal and, and outlets like that, as, as well as uh, The Guardian in the UK, I think does really good climate coverage and, and a few others as well. Vox in the United States and, and then Grist and 
and you know some of the more environmental websites as well. Thank you. What is your definition of climate change? Uh, my definition is that it is the uh, well. I guess there's a difference between um, climate change and global warming, and I think that's the, the confusion that some people have. You know, the gl- global warming um, is is the phenomenon by by which uh, increased greenhouse gases are causing the planet to heat at an unnaturally rapid rate. And climate change is the effect of that. So as, as the planet heats, as the oceans and the land and the, the atmosphere heat with, uh, with emissions, it changes the climatic systems. And so that doesn't mean that everything gets hotter. It means that just everything gets more unpredictable. So we get more intense storms, um, more rain in some parts, more drought in other parts. We get sea level rise. So to me, climate change is, is all the changes that are taking place because of global warming. Mm. What ways can the world as a whole take, action, take action in climate change? Well, I think there are so many. I mean, uh, in the book that I co-wrote with David Suzuki, Just Cool It, we, mm-hmm. um, when David agreed to write to work on the book with me, he told me that it had to be two-thirds of the book had to be on solutions. So it is. Um, so we have, um, you know, we have quite a range in the book. Um, so we, we outline personal solutions, agricultural solutions, technological solutions, and institutional solutions. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, everything that's, that's included in the Paris Agreement, of course, is, is going to get us there. I think there are people, things people can do in their personal lives, and I think those are important, and I think they all add up, and I think they also help to bring about a, an awareness and a change of consciousness. But I also think we're at a point where the real solutions now have to come to, from from the top. They have to come from government policy. They have to come from changes in industry. They have to come from changes in uh, economic systems and policies. And I think the way we bring about those changes, the, 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 the role that ordinary citizens can have, is by being active. You know, when you get... Uh, more than half a million people turning out in the streets of Montreal and 120,000 in Vancouver and 20,000 in Victoria, you know, all over the country, that sends a pretty clear message to politicians that people are demanding change. So I think it is up to, you know, it's up to all of us, you know, not just to make those changes in our own life, but to sort of demand changes from the top and show that we're serious about it, and show that, uh, you know, we'll only vote for parties that have really good climate policies and records on climate action and those kinds of things. I mean, I think one of the biggest things, of course, you know, there's there's a lot of things industrial we industrially we can do. But I think, you know, one of the biggest problems is our consumer and car culture. I think, you know, um, and I think, you know, electric cars may be part of the solution, but I think the whole idea of everybody needing their own car to get around is kind of, um, it's not not really a sensible idea in this, this time and place. And I think, you know, there's so much waste with consumerism and that, you know, causes emissions as well through production and transportation and all of those issues. Air travel, I think, is a big, uh, big contributor to climate uh, climate disruption as well. Mm-hmm. And what title, if you know, because I would like to get the book. What is the title of the book? 
Uh, the book David Suzuki and I wrote, um, the one on climate, is called Just Cool It, The Climate Crisis and What We Can Do, mm-hmm. published by Greystone Books. Nice. Awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alberta is made up of oil and gas and farmland. Mm-hmm. They will take a direct hit if changes are made concerning climate change. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, on, in terms of the impacts yeah, of climate change? Yeah, in terms change? of the people taking you know, a direct hit like that work for oil and gas and that are farmers... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of their livelihoods, there are a lot of impacts, you know, for agriculture, of course, there's, it's, it's becoming more unpredictable with, um, you know, more droughts or more flooding and those kinds of things. So, I mean, farming has always been difficult. It's always been a bit unpredictable. The weather does change. But I think with climate change, it's becoming even more unpredictable and there's more tendency toward things like drought and flooding. And so I think, you know, that's, that's definitely a hit on agriculture. Um, people in Alberta also tend to raise a lot of meat and beef. And I think, uh, you know, people are becoming concerned about their dietary habits and looking at different ways to eat and different ways to, to do agriculture. You know, there are a lot of ideas about regenerative agriculture and how you can do agriculture that that's, has less of an impact on the environment. And so, you know, I, I hope that people can get on board with some of these changes and, mm-hmm. and look at ways to do farming in a way that, that not only is good for the climate, but that helps protect soils, because soil loss is another, you know, huge global problem soil loss and depletion. I think for people in the oil industry, again, you know, there's the de- direct impacts. We saw the, the massive fires up in the Fort McMurray area, and, mm-hmm. and you know, I think that's a, a pretty heavy impact. But I think, you know, the biggest impact is just that this industry is changing, and it's not changing just because of climate change. You know, automation is cutting jobs. A lot of the oil companies have said that, you know, a lot of the operations in the tar sands can be automated. So I think, you know, jobs are becoming more scarce. The industry is, uh, is I mean, the oil sands haven't really slowed down, but, uh, but you know, they inevitably will. And so I think there will be a lot of job loss, and I think that's unfortunate. I think, you know, it's up to governments, both provincial and federal, to make sure that there are, you know, retraining programs and programs to help people transition to other industries, including the the rapidly growing clean energy and clean tech industries. Mm -hmm. What are the repercussions if Alberta does not take action on climate change? Well, I mean, I guess it depends because I think, you know, a lot of this is under federal jurisdiction. And I know some of the provinces have been challenging the uh, federal government's jurisdiction over what is a national and a global issue. And so far, the, uh, the provincial governments have lost all those court challenges. You know, the courts have ruled that the, the federal government does have the right to impose regulations when it comes to national um, issues and national emergencies. So I think, I think, I mean, the, cons- the, the trouble, uh, well, the thing is that there are huge opportunities for provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan. And Alberta was once, I'm not sure where it is now, but was once a leader in renewable energy. Southern Alberta especially was, you know, a pioneer in wind ener- energy. And there are resources, you know, there's a lot of wind and, you know, they call it sunny Alberta. There's a lot of sun and it's the same with Saskatchewan. So I think there are huge opportunities to start shifting to cleaner energy. And I think if if the governments, both provincial and federal, fail to do 
something, um, you know, fail to recognize what's going on and fail to address climate change, uh, you know, it's whether it's going to have a huge impact on the world or the country, I think, you know, it'll have some impact because everybody has to do their part. And if, if everybody said that our impact isn't big, so we're not going to do anything, well, that all adds up. But I think the other thing is it's going to hurt the economy. It's going to hurt uh, jobs because if you put all your eggs in one basket, as they say, or pin all your hopes on the oil and gas industry, and then the world no longer wants that product or they no longer want the, the particular product that the province is trying to sell, then, you know, that industry is going to start falling. And, you know, it's already been seeing problems with the drop in the price of oil and all of those kinds of issues. So, you know, the the, the industry is already facing some hardships, and I think those will only get worse. So I think the government's Governments need a plan for how to shift uh, both employment, uh, economic prospects, and all of those things away from that industry and into the to the cleaner industries that which are growing quite quickly right now. Thank you, Ian. What are your words of encouragement to the youth and people of Canada concerning climate change? Well, um, I think I'm getting more words of encouragement from them than I can give give to them. Um, I joined the climate march here last week in Vancouver, and it's. I have to say, you know, they were talking about you know maybe ten, fifteen thousand people showing up, and I remember standing there with my coworkers and friends and looking down toward the Canby Bridge and back up towards City Hall, and we couldn't even get to City Hall. There were so many people, and I have to say. It brought tears to my eyes and there were so many young people out there and they had really great signs and they were chanting and they were really committed and to me that was that was the most encouraging thing I I saw I mean in the end they said there were over 120,000 people so 10 Mm -hmm. times more people than they expected to show up showed up and just to see that massive movement was um was so encouraging, and I think that's what it takes. You know, I, I think it's unfortunate that young people sh- have to be doing this. Uh, you know, it's like Greta Thunberg says, you know, she shouldn't have to be doing this. She should be enjoying her childhood. She should be, you know, doing things that teens do. But but this is where we're at. The adults haven't done enough. And so I think, you know, it's it's, you know, Young people shouldn't have to be doing this, but the fact that they are, um, I think, is really important. And, and I think, you know, getting out and taking part in, in elections and, and really, you know, becoming informed about, uh, about climate and political issues and those things is, is really important. I think, you know, the, the one, you know, people always ask, you know, how hopeful are you? And I think, to me, what really brings me hope is I know the solutions are there. And again, it's something that Suzuki and I wrote about in the book. There are just tons of solutions, and some of them are fascinating, you know, in terms of technologies like artificial photosynthesis and, you know, battery storage technologies that are emerging, but as well as just the existing technologies. You know, we do have we do have the solutions, and we do have the, the technology. We have everything we need to... to um, um, to solve this problem, except for the political will. So I think that it gives me hope that if we can push the politicians to act, then we can get something done.
Indigenization Across the Nation is produced by Grace Heavyrunner with Hannah Manyguns and Spencer Burgess with original theme music by Terrell Tailfeathers. <laughs>